episode 13 of the Funk Travels podcast. <laughs> Take three. Yes. And this is an allusion to just how somewhat stressed out I am right now. Yeah. So if you can imagine, we're sitting in our living room filled with boxes and just chaos all around because we are moving out of our apartment. Uh, for a lot of it, we're moving out tomorrow. And we're getting there. We're just not quite ready yet. No, which is why we have two more days to finish up after we move out like our furniture. Yeah. But this is episode 13, and 13 is a lucky number. Um, and this is a special podcast um, for a number of reasons. One is that, um, as we referred to last time, we have a special guest interview, which we recorded uh, about a week and a half ago now and it's a great interview and i think uh, we talked through a bunch of stuff about turkey and its history and some of the future about what's going to happen maybe yeah you're gonna really want to stick around but we have a couple updates to talk about first um the first one is since our last episode there was a coup and after the interview yeah and after the interview that's a good point we don't yeah. we don't talk about so there was a coup attempt in in turkey and which failed and we'll talk about in a minute but we don't mention that in the interview because it hadn't happened yet so it's a little interesting at the end of the interview we talk a little bit about uh the, the, pres future. the president of turkey yeah. and some of his stuff and it's interesting in light of what's happened since but yeah so the the coup attempt happened and just kind of a, a really quick overview coups aren't new to turkey it's actually almost built into the society when uh, Ataturk, which you'll hear more about later, set up the government. He set it up as a secular government, and he was a military guy. And the Turkish military has always had the sense of they are in charge of keeping the government of Turkey to be Ataturkian, to be secular government. And so whenever a government comes to power that's more Islamic or more away from the ideals that Ataturk set up, the Turkish military takes it on upon themselves to overthrow that government and reestablish secular rule. And this has happened a number of times since the 20s. The last one was in 97. Yeah, they had one in 1960s, in the 1960s, and then 19, 1997. And then I think people thought there was going to be one in like 2007, and it didn't happen. Yeah. So, which is probably so, why we're in the dilemma that we are today. Yeah. So the, the coup. On, on one hand is a surprise on another hand it's kind of to be expected it didn't succeed and so that's kind of where we're at now with turkey is um, there's lots going on with the government trying to kind of clean up the mess in quotes after this coup and so if you're watching the news at all you'll probably see that and what that leads us to is um, a slight deviation in our plans, right? Right, because following the coup, when um, the president came back, he's also recently um, enforced a state of emergency yeah. for the country for the next three months. And so um, there's just a lot of unknowns for what that looks like for Turks and from foreigners and like changing the rules of how people come in and out of the country. Yeah, potentially. That hasn't happened yet. Right. But we, we don't know. Right. And so... Um, what we've decided to do is we're not delaying our leaving from the country, but we're we are still on track for but, August. Yep, but we are delaying our entrance into Turkey. Um, we had already planned a sailing trip we've mentioned before in early September, and so we're just going to wait until early September to go into Turkey. 
Uh, in between that, we are going to go to Spain, the land of no tacos. I'm so sorry, babe. <laughs> you would think, just as a side note, that Mexicans speak Spanish. Spanish people speak Spanish. Spanish people. <laughs> Spanish people. But yet, no tacos. <laughs> Because they're two different cultures. Yeah. With two different foods. Yep. And so because of the government instability, um, some concerns from our family and uh, the are wanting to travel anyway, it just kind of was this perfect storm that made us say, yeah, let's go somewhere else for a month. And so we've been scrambling, uh, getting tickets changed and making new plans. And, uh, and we're finally getting to a place where we're a little more settled now about we have tickets we have somewhere to stay and uh so we're still leaving in a few weeks right so i it really wasn't too hard to change quite a bit of those things which was nice it was a little stressful because there was just so many options that we it was hard to narrow it down but the fact that you had some cousins that live overseas and um really shout out to mike and jess um for letting us come and stay with you whoop whoop Yep. So it, there's some really just cool things that we were already going to go see them in the fall. And so we're just getting to see them sooner. And so we're, we're excited about it. Yeah, definitely. There's, it's, it's a really loose plan. So you'll be hearing more updates about it as we go. And Jason will, will continue to work the way that we planned for him to work as we move. And I will be working on some of my side projects as we go. But yeah, I think it'll be a new adventure that's fun for both of us. Yeah. We're excited about the changes. We're a little bit disappointed just that it's kind of – I'm a little bit disappointed, I should say, that we've had to change some of it. But I'm more excited now. Um, I think because like we really don't have any restrictions on when we actually have to get into the country. And so we've just been really um, strict on ourselves about making things happen because we're not going with the company that forcing that's forcing us to be there at a certain time. And so I'm having to just kind of give up some of the strictness that we put on ourselves to be more flexible. Mm -hmm. um, and generally, I am the one that's a little bit more like, let's wing it. And this time you've been a little bit more of the one that's like, it'll all work out and we'll make it work and we'll figure it out later. And so yep. we've kind of reversed roles in that sense of the flexibility and change of plans. Yeah. So if you have any more forward. questions about that, uh, feel free to ask us and uh, we're going to be a little busy in these next couple weeks getting everything finalized, but uh, we'll definitely make time for you guys. So so if you're just now listening to this and you're not a part of our email subscription, we do have um, an email update that we're starting. And so we sent out our first one on Sunday, which is before this podcast is actually released, which is on Monday. Um, and so if you are one of the insiders for Funk Travels, then you probably have already heard the news that we just told you. Um, but um, if you get a chance why don't you pop on over to our websites and then you be, you can join our insider email list and then you'll get to hear some of the fun stuff that we might be talking about on our podcast or some of the stuff that we don't even mention on the podcast um, through our emails that we send out to the group. Yep. And of course, you can always catch up with us on Facebook and Instagram via Funk Travels. And if you ever have a question, you can always email us. Yep, that's right. So now we're going to play the interview that we did a couple weeks ago. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. We enjoyed doing it and hope you learn a lot. Hey y'all, I'm 
Katie. I'm Jason. And together we believe in intentional dreaming for international living. But for now, we enjoy our small town island life, playing games and cooking foods of all types. But most of all, we enjoy traveling to new places. And as we plan to move overseas one day, we hope to use this time to share our transition and experiences along the way. Okay, so today we have our first special guest on our podcast. That's right. Yep, we have our friend uh, Scott Rank. He's a history professor, and he focuses on Middle Eastern history and specifically like Christian and Muslim relations. We've known Scott for for a while now, and uh, we thought it'd be fun to bring him on and talk a little bit about Turkish history. He writes books and does online courses and is a true Renaissance man, and so we're happy to have him on the program with us. Hi, Scott. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so we've we talked a lot about Turkey, and as you know, we we're moving there pretty soon. And so we thought, since you knew a lot about Turkey, it would be fun to bring you on and um, have our listeners learn a little bit about what you know. And um, I thought we'd start with this, that I've heard that the, the Turkish people aren't actually native to the land of Turkey. Um, is that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, their story is interesting. Uh, so the nation of Turkey is uh, what was historically called Asia Minor. Uh-huh. It, that which is mentioned in uh, classical Greek literature. That's where the Persians were uh, in the Bible. Those are the that's where the seven cities of Revelation were located. But historically, the people who would have inhabited that area more or less would have been ethnically Greek. Um, okay. Other yeah, other groups like Lydians would have been there, but the Turks came later to that place. So where did they come from? Well, they come from Central Asia. Uh, they were referred uh, in antiquity by different names, sometimes Saracens, which just means Easterner, kind of these horse nomadic uh, barbarians that Herodotus and other ancient writers would refer to. Hmm. Uh, and they make up a lot of these different um, hordes that would sometimes come through and ransack places in Eurasia, whether Europe or China or the Middle East. But they really make their appearance and they break through into Asia Minor around uh, 1000, specifically 1071 in a battle with the Byzantines. And that's where they break through and make their way into Asia Minor. And through a long process, they settled into their lands and that's how um, they became established. So the Turkish, uh, the Turks are located there. The nation of Turkey is in Asia Minor, but their homeland is in uh, Central Asia, in all those Stan countries, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, uh, th- those types of places. Got it. So before they came in there, you said it was like the Byzantines. So that's when it was Byzantium, like Istanbul. Is that right? Yeah, the um, Byzantium, what was the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh-huh. Uh, and then after the Western Roman Empire fell in 476, then the Eastern Roman Empire continued on as uh, Byzantium. Although little fun fact, it was uh, never called that. They all Always referred to themselves as Romans, oh, really? and the the ethnic Greeks who uh, still live in Istanbul today uh, are called Rum, which means Roman. So you could literally meet a Roman when you go throughout Istanbul too today. Oh, cool! And it was when was it renamed Constantinople? Then that was um, when uh, Constantinian dedicated the city in 330 AD. Okay, and um, but it was a it was officially called that even after the Turks conquered it. Um, it wasn't called Istanbul except in certain religious writings. Um, so it was called Constant- Constantinople or Constantinia, as the Turks would say, up until the founding of the Turkish Republic in 1923. Oh, okay, great. Um, and then how does the Ottoman play into all this too? 
Where does that name come from? Um, there's, I always feel weird telling people I'm a historian of the Ottoman Empire. I don't say that to Americans anymore. It's like, <laughs> oh, footstools, nice. So, um, that's, uh, you might wonder, why is it called that? Well, um, this is an, another fun fact. I'm full of them if you need them. Uh, the footstool Ottoman, there was a style in furniture in the 1800s in Europe, uh, 1700s and 1800s, a la Turca, in the Turkish style, where they'd have big, poofy furniture, imagining some uh, the a sultan's bedroom or all, all plush oriental style furniture. And this is where the footstool comes from. But oh, wow. Ottoman um, in... After the Turks come to Asia Minor in 1071, central power breaks down and it becomes sort of a Wild West cowboy country where there are different chieftainships uh, and tribal groups of Turkic um, leaders and uh, and also Christians as well. And there's, uh, yeah, it's basically like a Wild West. And out of this uh, Wild West territory, there's a leader named Osman who um, begins to form a small state, uh, maybe a few hundred people who are drawn to his banner for conquest and plunder and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then his sons uh, expand his conquest, and then their sons expand their conquest. This all starts in 1300, and you snowball this out for seven generations, and you get to uh, Fatih uh, Sultan Mehmet, who conquers Constantinople in 1453. Mm. And then you snowball that out a few more generations to Suleiman, who conquers all the way up to Hungary into Central Asia. So the Ottomans were a dynasty um, that were based in Constantinople, Istanbul today. They ruled all the way up to Central Europe. They almost conquered Vienna. Uh, they controlled almost all the Middle East, uh, down into Syria, Jordan, Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, Mecca, Medina, the holy cities of Islam, Egypt, wow. um, all the way out east through Turkey, um, around the Armenian border, and basically up to the border of Iran. So uh, they were a major world power. And there were a lot of fears in Europe, at least, that the Turks were going to conquer everything. And Martin Luther is writing in the 1500s um, for two Germans what to do if the Turks conquer Germany. How should you live as Christians under Turkish Muslim rule? And wow. this was um, the Catholic Church up in the 1400s and 1500s was trying to raise money and sell indulgences for a crusade against the Turks just to basically put up a good defense barrier. So this was because, I mean, for, for the Turks to conquer Constantinople, that was the holy city of Christianity. That was as shocking as Rome being conquered, and mm. the Turks threatened to do that as well. So they were loomed very large in the in the presence of late medieval, early Renaissance Europe. Wow. So was the Ottoman Empire bigger than the Roman Empire at its peak, or did it not get that big? Uh, it was a little bit smaller. It had all of the domains of Rome, of the Roman Empire, and at least on the eastern side, a little bit more, like they controlled the Crimean Peninsula and parts of Ukraine. Uh, geographic size, not quite as big, but uh, in terms of economic might, they were a big deal because a lot of the trade routes that went from um, China and India to get to Europe had to pass through the Ottoman Empire. So they controlled a lot of that trade and made a lot of money. And that's part of what kicks off the European Age of Exploration, because Europeans wanted um, access to the wealth and the spice market and other things of Eastern Asia, but didn't want to have to deal with all the Ottoman middlemen and traders. So mm. that's what why they wanted so much to find an alternate route. Oh, wow. So is the discovery of America can be tied back to the Ottomans? Yeah, I mean, in a way, there's... Um, that's something that really kicked it off. And a lot of historians are now questioning, why didn't the Ottomans get to America first? Because they were, in some ways, more of a naval power. Um, they practically controlled the Mediterranean when 
Christopher Columbus is sailing to America. Uh, and the current president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, even suggested that Muslims made it to America first, which is completely, just completely ridiculous. But <laughs> he's like, he likes all these um, weird um, alternate history stuff. And Wasn't, was there something about the Turks going to the moon first, too? Did I hear that? Or maybe not? That was something I saw online. It turned out to be like an Onion article thing. Oh, okay. but <laughs> I, at, at first I thought that... I could see him actually saying that, that the Ottomans made it to the moon first. And um, I asked a historian friend of mine who looks at Ottoman artwork, and I said, do you have anything that would look sort of like a rocket being fired up that a crazy person could latch onto and say that it's proof? And she actually found an old artistic design of a firework being launched that looks sort of like a rocket. Hmm. And I said, okay, I can use this as to put together my own weird like Ottoman version of the government faked the moon landing. So. <laughs> Yeah, when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, he saw a mosque. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's another one that, that they, they say that he um, heard a sound, uh, that he heard the call to prayer in his ear. That's a, uh, that, that's a weird conspiracy theory floating throughout the Middle East. I forget where that comes from. But oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, the government's full of secrets. Exactly. They don't you know. Okay, so I just want to like make sure that our listeners are like up to speed because we've talked a lot of like we used a lot of words that maybe they've just not been familiar with <laughs> up until now. <laughs> oh, sorry. So we talked about where the Turks came from, but maybe we could just briefly just go through what were the four major empires that have been in the area of Turkey. Um, I used to tell people there's four major empires that Istanbul was a part of, but maybe I was lying. Yeah, I mean, Roman and then um, the Byzantine, which would be uh, the Eastern Roman Empire after mm -hmm. when um, Rome is split into the Eastern and Western empires and then the West falls and East continues onward. Uh, and then the Ottomans come after that. Okay. Um, those are three. Is Am I missing a fourth one there? I I, for some reason, oh. I used to think there was a fourth. So whoever was before the Romans, I'm just uh, making yeah. something up. I mean, what, whatever way you want to count it, I'm, um, <laughs> there's whatever Greek principality is in there. But right, right. I, I'm pretty hazy on ancient stuff. Mm -hmm. So some somebody can um, leave uh, an all cap lo caps locks complaints about this when <laughs> that, this podcast goes up. Yeah, because there's Alexander the Great was Greek, wasn't he? And there's some Turkish connection to that right yeah i mean he was um the we'll be all technical to well he was macedonian whatever but uh, <laughs> you know i mean in terms of launching hellenic culture uh he's pivotal in greek history and the hellenic, okay the um, that might be the fourth Hellen one that you're thinking. Yeah, yeah that's the other one so. Yeah, and then with the um, Turkish connection, it's indirect, but it's there. Whereas he um, conquers the Persian Empire, um, the Achaemenid, I believe, or whatever. Uh, yeah, one of the Persian empires, and then he goes throughout uh, Central Asia, uh, Afghanistan, all the way down in India. He undoubtedly would have encountered uh, Turkic tribes, uh, mm. Turkic peoples, and um, the connection of the Turkic pe peoples to world civilization. I mean, it is really old. It's um, not something that just begins when they arrive in or in um, the Near East. They have contacts with China. They're always kind of on the outer fringes of China, and they and the Mongols were the one that prompted them to build the Great Wall as a good uh, defensive uh, element there. Uh, as Christianity spreads from Jerusalem and goes west to the Roman Empire, at the exact same time it's going east. It's going uh, east in similar or even greater numbers to the Persian Empire throughout Central Asia. So mm. all throughout the Silk Road, you have uh, monasteries being built that 
the uh, monks there would have likely spoke Syriac and would have been translating the Bible and other theological works into Turkic languages at that time. And some uh, Turkic tribes and Mongolian tribes would have uh, even converted to Christianity. So a lot of the wives of the Mongolian rulers were Nestorian Christian. Hmm. And um, yeah, so they're really, I mean, they're being hooked into this, um, the global network because of their residence on the Silk Road, which was the economic backbone of the ancient world at this time, um, they're part of the action and they're they're directly involved in a lot of things. But uh, the disadvantage of being nomadic is that you don't typically take the time to sit down and build a school or write a lot of what's going on. So they don't have a lot of sources of what from themselves. It's always from outsiders, from the Chinese and uh, or the Byzantines, and they'll typically have a negative view of you if you're always the guy coming and pillaging their stuff. They'll think <laughs> that you just do nothing but steal junk, but yeah. like, they don't like yeah. the Norse or the Vikings or people like that. Exactly. So that's what they were uh, in the in the Eastern world. Oh, interesting. Maybe tell us the timeline on the those couple of empires from the Roman Empire to the to to like kind of the present day. Yeah. Well, I guess until the Ottoman Empire, just so that I can. I'm just thinking about what other things are happening in the world and might just help to rehash okay. those dates a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so a couple of the dates that um, Constantinople uh, is dedicated in 330 when it becomes the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, which are, then becomes the Byzantine Empire. Uh, in 1071, that's when the Turks uh, break the Eastern defenses of the Byzantine Empire and are able to enter uh, Asia Minor. 1300 AD is when the Ottoman Empire begins, and that's when it starts to grow quickly. 1453 is when they conquer Constantinople and actually completely destroy the final remnants of the Byzantine Empire uh, and make uh, Constantinople its capital. And then it, the Ottoman Empire peaks, um, the historians argue about when it peaks, around 1600, 1650, when it's really at its maximum extent, when it controls all of southeastern and a lot of central Europe and the Middle East and, the, and North Africa. Um, but then it starts to shrink in size uh, for a number of reasons, with um, the discovery of the new world and different trade routes. Europe grows in wealth uh, through the scientific revolution. New technology comes to Europe that allows it to grow. Um, uh, its educational attainment grows with printing presses and different military technologies also allow Europe to overcome them with the rise of Russia. The Ottomans now have a northern front they have to fight on. So in a long story short, what happens is that um, the Ottomans start to lose a lot of their land and there's this that they shrink over the decades and over the centuries and by the 1800s a lot of people refer to uh, in Europe refer to the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe hmm. just this ancient em empire this monstrosity from the Middle Ages that is just destined to fall there's something called the Eastern question of the Ottoman Empire is going to fall apart how do we as European powers carve it up for ourselves carving up turkey ha 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 you know just <laughs> we have to get in the turkey jokes we can't avoid them so might as well just you know go after head on but um that's a, so for the english and the french from their perspective they already run global empires they have colonies all over the globe in asia and africa and there's no reason why they can't look at the Middle East in the same way and think, how can we get new colonies and new markets and new places to extract resources? Yeah. Um, with World War One, uh, World War One is the Ottoman Empire uh, suffers brutal losses. They lose all of their European holdings. Uh, the countries in the Balkans, like uh, Bulgaria, um, Macedonia, which 
around this time had been lost and become independent countries. Uh, really, everything in Europe is they lose, and all they have are uh, the Middle Eastern lands, the Arabian Peninsula, and a lot of um, ethnic Arab group, groups and ethnic Arab peoples also have their own independence movement. So um, there's the issue of the Ottoman Empire collapsing so much that the only thing that would be left of the Turks after the Europeans got their own lands would be a tiny little rump of land right along the Black Sea. And we have maps of this period where European diplomats are specifically drawing out what will be left for the Turks. Hmm. So this is why Ataturk is such a big deal. Ataturk was a colonel who won the Battle of Gallipoli in 1915. He defended um, these straits called the Dardanelles, which um, you'd have to have a map of Turkey to explain it well, but Suffice it to say that um, Istanbul would have been wide open to naval siege uh, had the Turks lost this battle. Mm. Um, the only major battle that the Turks really won in World War One was the Battle of Gallipoli, which was under the exceptional command of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. So this made him a hero to his people, and it made him such a hero that when the Ottomans lost World War One and um, European allied powers were preparing to carve it up for themselves, he was able to um, basically defy the Ottoman authorities um, put together his own revolutionary movement. Much of the military was loyal to him, and he was able to launch a um, war of independence. And because of um, through the Turkish War of Independence, he fought Greek forces that were indirectly backed by the Allies. Um, the modern nation of Turkey was able to come into existence. I mean, Turkey wouldn't exist if it weren't for him. So it's it's hard to overstate what the importance of Ataturk. He's like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson rolled into one person, where he was the military salvation of Turkey when he becomes the first president. He's a benevolent dictator. He, um, the reforms he launched were astounding, where the Islamic, um, the legal system, which was a mixture of Western law and Islamic law, the Islamic element was completely thrown out. Um, Turkish law was based completely on Western law um, for egalitarianism and equality between the sexes. Uh, women could vote in Turkey before they could in the United States. Wow. Um, the world's first female fighter pilot was from Turkey, Sabia Gökçen. The uh, Turkish language, which pre previously used the Arabic alphabet, was switched to a Latin alphabet in a period of like six months. So everyone becomes illiterate. Um, so the level of reform in this period was absolutely astounding. So wow. when you see Turkey today, I mean, the picture of Ataturk is, that's one of the first things that foreigners know, like, wow, he is everywhere. Every single classroom has a picture of him. Every government building has a picture of him. Statues of him are everywhere. He's on all of the banknotes. But when you see his role in the country's past, it really makes sense. Yeah. I even heard... Is it is it true that for a while the call to prayer at the mosque was even done in Turkish instead of Arabic? Yeah, it was until I think uh, about 1950 or so. And that's, I mean, that's that's a yeah, big deal, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the the cornerstones of the practice of the Islamic religion is the call to prayer, and Arabic understood as the eternal language of God, and that this is um, this is this is like pushing as far as you possibly could. And the, that things like that did have to get backpedaled a bit because they were so extreme. But um, I can't imagine any other Muslim country where something like that would happen. Yeah. So um, could you maybe talk a little bit about how, so Ataturk was, was he trying to set up a, a secular government then and not like an Islamic government? He was. Uh, Ataturk's background um, there were a lot of intellectuals in uh, the late Ottoman Empire who had um, 
very different opinions about how the future of the empire should be. And there were different factions. Some people thought that there were traditionalists who wanted to return to the um, more classical Islamic approach to government that um, ran things along traditional Islamic lines. There were Islamic reformists who looked favorably on Western philosophy and um, Western intellectualism and wanted a legal system that used uh, Western civil law, but then combined it with Islamic elements as well. And that's um, the court system was reforming along these lines in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And then there were secularists who uh, didn't want any Islamic elements whatsoever. Um, By and large, the secular camp won, shall we say. Uh, historians don't like to say that one group wins because they don't like drawing those hard lines um, because these uh, reformists don't disappear. And in fact, in modern day Turkey, a lot of these um, Muslim intellectuals of 100 years ago who try to combine Western um, legal approaches with Islam are kind of coming back in vogue. Hmm. Uh, how do you bring Islam into the modern world? Um, so it's not like these people disappear. But at least in the time of Ataturk, um, because he and his circle had so much power um, at, and, and so much, I guess, you could say goodwill that they had sort of a blank check to rule in a sense um, in the formation of Turkey. Um, Things are heavily set up along the French and I think Swiss civil code. um, And Islam becomes completely under the thumb of the state. Before there was a tension between ruling authority and Islam, or they were sort of um, independent groups. It's not like they were were heavily intertwined, um, but they kind of they, they existed in the symbiotic relationship in the Ottoman Empire. Okay. In the Turkish Republic, um, Islam is completely under sub, subservient, subordinated to state control. Um, so this is something where uh, even in Turkey today, any imam is a essentially a bureaucrat. They're employed by the government. They are paid by the government. Mm. Mosques are built by the government. And some Westerners have thought, oh, this is just, this is like Saudi Arabia because the government is paying for all these mosques. And they think, well, you can see it that way, but the original reason is so that it's completely under state control. Um, So I would see it as like a control mechanism more than a religious reason. Although there are plenty of religious government officials that um, are perfectly happy to propagate Islam as much as possible. Would, would the Church of England be kind of a fair comparison or no? Yeah, I think so. Um, that's that's a good way to see it. Um, Turkey is more religious than England is at the moment. And England, um, in, in some ways, it's like where England was 100 to 150 years ago, where there were questions of how much leeway do you allow Jews to have um, it, with uh, public expression? And can you be an Englishman and a Jew? The questions like that. Turkey has, in a lot of ways, done a poor job of um, giving integrating non-Muslims into their civil life. Um, And not even non-Muslims, but uh, non-Sunni Muslims. Uh, Sunni Islam is the dominant form of Islam in Turkey, but there are a lot of Alevis, which is, I guess, sort of like a heterodox version of Islam. And they have their own different type of religious buildings that are a little bit different from mosques, Mm -hmm. and the government won't pay for those to be built, by and large. Um, If you are a Christian, the government does recognize the... uh, the Armenian, uh, the Greek Orthodox, and the uh, Jewish religion and pre-existent buildings are per- allowed to 
exist there. But if you're, but for a Christian congregation to have a new building built, they almost certainly won't get um, legal recognition. Mm-hmm. So there's freedom of belief. A person can privately can believe what they want to as an individual. But for religious people to come together and assemble and have their own house of worship, there's not freedom of religious expression in that way. Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's really helpful for people who have never been to Turkey to understand kind of this weird relationship between the secular government and the religious side of things and how they kind of mesh together and especially the history with Ataturk and how that kind of created what it is today. I think that's it's a hard thing for at least most of my friends to understand how that kind of combines because they just Turkey balances it really well, I think, for the most part, um, because they can't, it's hard for them to picture, they can only see European, like how how Europe does its countries in Christianity and that type of realm, and then they see Middle East, and so they can't figure out how Turkey does it, where it's kind of European, but also Islamic, and so... Um, it's a hard balance for them to, to kind of see, but you explained it really well. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, so in, in the last like nearly century, I guess, since Auditurk, um, what are kind of like the major events or things that have kind of happened that's really shaped the country? Is there anything that really jumps out in this latest century? Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, time in Turkey. Uh, it by and large didn't participate in World War II, so that didn't affect its history like it did for us. Uh, there were... Um, there was a military coup in the 1980s where, uh, with its parlata- uh, parliamentary government, it um, threw out a leftist party. And in um, 1999, there was an earthquake in a city east of Istanbul that killed about 40,000 people. Wow. And then in 2001, there was an economic crisis where in, overnight the economy was uh, halved. It, so the value of the lira fell by, by about 50%. To, I guess to get to the things that are of most uh, significant contemporary relevance, in 2003, the Justice and Development Party gained power in Parliament, which was um, a, how do I say, um, an Islamic-influenced government, meaning that they were, um, they were very open to um, European integration. They were pro-Turkey joining the EU, um, op- privatizing state-owned businesses, increasing foreign investment in Turkey, but also allowing um, religion to have a more prominent uh, place in society. And at this time in 2003, for example, if you were a Muslim female, you couldn't wear a headscarf on a state university because a headscarf was seen as a symbol of political Islam, Hmm. um, showing all the the weird ironies of uh, religion and Turkish life. So fast forward... um, about uh, 10 or 15 years, the AKP has been in power uh, from 2003 until today. And they've done a lot in the country. Um, first of all, economically, the the economic growth of Turkey has been astounding. Um, Istanbul looks like a completely different city from when I first went there in 2002 until today, where there's skyscrapers all over the place and huge shopping malls and um, hundreds of Starbucks throughout the city. Uh, so Inter- the amount of intercontinental subways. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's just amazing how much it's grown. Um, yeah. So underneath the Bosphorus, there's a um, you can you can travel underneath of it um, on a, a metro system. Uh, so in that and then all throughout the country, there are huge highways and airports to be built in the city. The infrastructure in Turkey is just exploded, and it's it's just leaped ahead as a modern country where the the amount of smartphone usage, at least in Istanbul, looks like America. And I'll see gypsies who walk around and collect cardboard from dumpsters who have smartphones. <laughs> um, so all these like 
cute little things of globalization you can see everywhere. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the government has steadily made mo- more movements toward um, expanding the role of Islam in public. Uh, like a couple years ago, there was a new law passed that alcohol couldn't be sold after 10 p.m. and not within 100 meters of a school or a mosque. So um, the government has built a lot of mosques. Yeah. And and the government's built mosques all over the country. And and it makes people wonder. There's like two within like 100 yards of each other. Right. So it's a question of um, some people wonder, is Turkey moving toward like an Islamic revolution like Iran? Because uh, Erdogan said once in the 90s, democracy is like a um, train. You use it to get to your destination and then you get off that he has this secret master plan? Or is he just content to um, let Turkey continue being a democracy, but have more space in the government or have more space in the country for expression of Islamic religion? And yeah, I I don't know. It's that's a big question. Do you know much about what he's trying to do something with the government, right? Uh, Trying to make the strong executive or something? Do you know anything about that? He had a referendum a year ago to change Turkey from a parliamentary system to a presidential system so that the office of the presidency would have vastly expanded powers above what it does now. Similar to the USA. Right, in that sense. And um, it didn't succeed, but um, he is president. I mean, he... Almost everyone in his party, a lot of the the people who were part of his original group that rose up 10 years ago, who could who had a lot more, who were sort of his equals and could question him and push back when they thought he went too far. Many of those people aren't there now. So there's a lot more uh, lackeys and yes men around him. Hmm. And that's a worry that he's becoming a bit unhinged and he's had power so long that um, somebody like a Muammar Gaddafi, you know, didn't become like that overnight, but it was as a result of having power for decades and decades and decades. Um, so the worry is, is that he'll he could continue to trample on freedoms. And um, many journalists have been jailed for no other reason that they insulted him. Hmm. Um, so there's this kind of this weird uh, sensitivity um, that he believes he to to insult him is to he and the state are the same thing and to insult him is to somehow be a traitor to the state. Got it. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think this was really informative. Um, I I think I learned a lot too. So did you have any other questions? I don't know. I was trying to think of it. I was trying to think of like, we talked about government. We talked about where Turks come from. We talked about like kind of the area where Turkey is now and kind of what's passed through Turkey. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about the future about where we think it, it might go or where people think it's it will go. And I think the only other thing is like the Turks now, the majority of Turks that I know grew up in like are several generations of secular Turks. And so the ones that I know, their foundation isn't conservative Islam. I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how does that look? I think it comes down to a question of identity and, um, This question of being a a Turk and that plays into these questions of where is the country headed and if I'm somehow have, I don't know, stronger Turkish roots, stronger Turkish bona fides, then I have the right to to claim where it goes and it's these outsiders who are tinkering with things and 
Um, yeah, it's um, there. There's a lot of overlap with America in the sense that um, to be Turkish is kind of it's this invented identity where people it, it was something that was forged in the minds of people, and that's what a lot of um, for a lot of Americans that's what it is as well. It's an identity that's forged in our minds. It's not an ethnic thing or genetic thing or whatever. Um, so I tell Turks a lot that for us as Americans we have that in common, and and I will say that um, for all the differences that Turks have had, I mean differences with Americans over foreign policy or whatever. No one has ever been rude to me in my time there just because I was an American. So anyone listening, um, despite all the controversy and crazy things happening over there, if you ever can go to Turkey, please do because the people are awesome. Yeah, that's been our experience too. Um, Yeah. And I agree with you on just the warm culture and, and friendliness of the people. And I think there's just some confusion on that. So yeah. So Scott, I, we're, I think we can wrap this up now. But I know you got a, you have a lot of things going on. So um, is there anything you want to plug or mention to our audience about what you do or what you're doing or anything? Yeah, yeah. I um, you can check out two things. I have uh, some different short history books on Amazon. My pen name is Michael Rank. So if you just put that in Amazon, you'll find them. Um, two books uh, or one that I enjoyed writing is called um, uh, The Most Productive People in History. Um, Inventor scientists and something else I forget what <laughs> from uh, Archimedes to Elon Musk and I have a course on udemy.com U-D-E-M-Y um, called uh, History of the Middle East from 600 AD to today so wow. you can yeah. learn about Middle East stuff that's cool yeah we'll put links to those things in our show notes if anybody wants to check those out yeah I think those are great resources for oh, we have some resources on our website for just those who are interested in a little bit of history of Turkey and Izmir yeah, but definitely this, add those. this would be great to add to those um for those who are just uh, wanting a little bit more and in, in-depth research yeah. out there so. well thank you so much for your time and for all your information that you shared we, yeah. we, had, we had fun talking to you yeah me too thanks for having me yeah you're very welcome Thank you.